This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. Let me ask you something. Have you ever cycled across an entire country by yourself? Or have you ever recreated a famous historical expedition? Yeah, me neither. Now let me ask you something else. Could you imagine doing any of these things with a couple of kids? Today I chat with Charles Scott, a family adventurer and author of Rising Sun, a father and son's bike adventure across Japan. His stories will make you reconsider how you can travel with your family. Wow. Actually, I don't even know where to begin because you have had so many adventures already. But the one I'm going to start with is when you biked across Japan, Mm -hmm. the length of Japan, with your eight-year-old son, Sho. So let's start with that. How did you come up with the idea? And tell me about this grand adventure of yours. Sure. And that's a great place to start because it it was the first of my big adventures that I've taken. I've done a few other things before that. But at that point, I was working for Intel Corporation. So I was kind of like a typical corporate guy Mm -hmm. and I'd been there for at that point maybe 11 12 years and I kind of felt this nudge or this itch to do something a little more adventurous with my life and so I started making a list of just cool things I wanted to do like you know going forward and one of them was have adventures with my kids and I have two children and so when I wrote that down I said this it's so cool I mean it could be anything right so I so my son who was seven at the time I just sat down with him and said okay Let's just have an adventure. It can, it can be anything. Let's just do a father-son adventure. And we brainstormed and came up with the idea of cycling across Japan. And my wife is Japanese, and we usually go to Japan once a year to visit family. So he, my son actually came up with the idea of doing it in Japan. And we talked about, well, maybe we could ride a bike. And at first, I thought it'd be something like a week, take a week off from work and just do, you know, ride around. And we just got carried away with the idea. I mean, it was my idea to do the whole country. And he was too young to realize how nuts the idea was. <laughs> so he just said, yeah, sure. I said, I said you want to just ride across the whole thing? I had no idea how long it would take. Yeah. And I was like, let's just do the whole freaking country. Yeah. And he said, he's like, okay. you know. And so we decided it. And then... There was a variety of things after that I had to figure out, one of which I'd never done such a trip before. Mm-hmm. So one, you know, how could I do it without getting hurt myself and injuring my back or legs? And, yeah. and also that it would be reasonable for a child, you know, he would be eight at the time, so reasonable for an eight-year-old to do. And then convince my wife that it was okay and I would keep him safe and then also not get fired. And yeah. that's all of these things are dramatized in the in the book that I wrote. And so I wrote a book about this adventure that describes each of those issues and how we would resolve them. Well, you were making me very nervous towards the end of the book. Here you are wrestling sumo wrestlers and broke a toe. And I'm like, oh, his journey's over already. Yes, yes. Yeah. But you made it. I, mean, well, if, I don't want to give away. I just gave away the book, but you know. No, it's fine. And I was going to say, if there's one little fact or kind of piece of advice that it, that a reader takes away from the book, it's is don't challenge a sumo wrestler. That's, 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 <laughs> that's I, I learned that. the story. And, but my wife, she's, she's like, you know, most people would already know that in advance. It's right. interesting that you needed to learn that the hard yeah. way. So I don't know what else to say. That That is a great example of maybe my uh, my character flaw. <laughs> One of many character flaws that I felt the need to challenge the sumo wrestler and right. find out if I actually could win. No, no, I cannot. You can't. No, I cannot. So, so I, tell, tell me about this bike, how it was connected so that your son could ride behind you. Mm-hmm. 
And that, that of course, was the key because an eight-year-old, you know, in my mind, it's unreasonable to expect an eight-year-old to cycle 2,500 miles in 67 days so yeah. on his own bicycle. But there's a thing called a trailer cycle, which connects to an adult's bike. So it's basically like a bicycle, but instead of a front wheel, there's a bar that extends out and connects to the back of the adult's bike. Mm -hmm. And the child can pedal or not. So a tandem bike has one chain that connects you know, uh -huh. the two riders, so yeah. you pedal in the same rate. But a trailer cycle allows the child to basically sit back and do nothing, and the adult can do all the pedaling, or the child can pedal, and it helps. Hmm. And so that way, he could participate, but when he was tired, he could stop. And we, we really, we literally cycled, you know, eight or nine, seven, eight, nine hours a day that way. Uh, and the trick was to kind of take breaks. You know, I usually wouldn't go for more than an hour and a half or so before I would at least take some break. But it, you know, it was physically possible for him to do a trip like this because of the trailer cycle. It was great. How did you recover from this? Because at points <laughs> you're talking about your legs and yeah. just, oh my gosh, I, it, it was incredible. Let's see, the, the, problem that lingered the longest after the trip actually were the tips of my fingers. What happens is when you when we were going up the mountain, it, you know, you were just hoping you would finally get over the summit because you were so exhausted from climbing. Yeah. And then the minute you get over the summit and start going down, you're scared to death and wish you were climbing again because you're, you're it's so steep you can lose control. Mm -hmm. You grip the brakes and gripping the brakes, what would happen is my hands would start to go numb and my forearms would go numb yeah. and I'd stop and kind of shake them out. But you can only stop so frequently. And so what happened is the tips of my fingers just literally went numb and stayed numb for, I think it was probably maybe four months after wow. the trip. It was crazy. And, you know, it's, it's like minor nerve damage. And then and then they're fine. Minor so, nerve damage. Or something. I don't know. So that was the one yeah, where, yeah, it's probably, you know, maybe I, and I had bike gloves. I mean, there are different tricks you can use to minimize it. But huh. there's just, when you're riding that much and you're going over mountains, there's just only so much you can do to, you know, to deal with the hands. So numb hands were were part of it. The broken toe, you just, you know, wrap it up and just deal ignore with it. it. Yeah, deal with it. Wow. Okay. So what did Sho think about this adventure at the end of it? He was surprisingly nonchalant. What was so huh. interesting is is throughout the ride, many people would, literally would, to his face would say, this is too hard for an eight-year-old. Yeah. And what was amazing to me is, is it didn't enter his mind until adults told him to his face, this is too hard for you. Right. And then my, what I would do is, that, that made me nervous because I'm like, I would just like be quiet, stop. Yeah. And, I, and so a couple of times he looked at me and said, is this too hard for me? And I said, I don't know. Do you think it's too hard? We're doing it. And he's like, well, I don't think so. I think I can do it. And I said, okay, just ignore them. You know, these. So it's it's a very it was a very huh. interesting example of how we either we have these preconceived notions of what's reasonable and what's unreasonable, mm -hmm. and we project them onto others. Yeah. And what we were doing was ex was finding out whether or not this was reasonable. And the the answer is, you can make it completely unreasonable if you ride too hard or too long, and then you can make it completely reasonable if you turn it into a fun adventure and and take breaks and all that. So by the end of the 67 days, you know, he'd figured out, we'd both figured out the routine. Hmm. And it's completely manageable. And so I, I did ask him, I said, so how was it? You know, was it really hard? And he said, yeah, kind of. And I said, you know, and and, uh, and I said, well, you know, do you think you want to do another one? He said, yeah, absolutely. And and then he started huh. talking about, well, but the next one I want to ride my own bicycle. You know, I don't need my own trailer cycle. So there's a little hubris coming out. Yeah. Like, like, don't be like your dad. <laughs> but no, so he, you know, he saw how possible it was to do something like this huh. and it was hard in certain ways but then once you get used to it you kind of he, he rose to the occasion and we've done a bunch of other things since then well, really, yeah. yeah it says a lot though doesn't it about the programming that adults put into kids and they'll start to believe it so in fact that that for me was a really important lesson because the first week of this trip 
my son through three major temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. And they were, I think, in part they were related to just probably anxiety about what was coming and also the newness. So just being on your bike every day and the weather was, was rough sometimes. And so there was a transition period. And I really didn't know if we could do this. And many people had either explicitly or implicitly made it clear that they thought what I was doing was a mistake and kind mm -hmm. of almost, not child abuse, but, but pretty, just kind of like a maybe a midlife crisis. You know, you're making your child do this and it's, right. a, it's a bad idea. And when he threw these temper tantrums in the first week, all those people's fears were now becoming realized before my eyes. I'm like, this really is too hard for him, isn't it? And and I thought about it and thought about it and decided, you know, I'm, I just think he can, I, I really believe he can deal with it. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of conversations and one in particular where I just said, think of yourself as a teammate. Like, I, I cannot yeah. do this ride without you unless you're like a teammate. And after that conversation, it was, it was really remarkable to see him just switch. Yeah. This, the timber tantrums disappeared. He dealt with it. And then sometimes when I was freaking out or just kind of in despair on these mountain climbs, he would say, it's okay, Daddy, you can do it. So, I mean, we almost switched roles a little bit. And so the, I guess the, for me, the conclusion was if you have high expectations for your child mm -hmm. and you know them well so that it's within a reasonable framework, they'll, they'll rise to the occasion. And when you have low expectations, they'll drop to that expectation too. So I, I really think that's, was, that was an important lesson for me to learn and kind of experience. There were some key characters through your book that believed in the idea from the beginning, though. Like, I'm thinking Mr. Sato? Mm-hmm. He's great, and he keeps popping up throughout the book. Tell me about yeah. him. And it, actually, I just returned from Japan four days ago, yeah. and we saw Mr. Saito in Mr. Tokyo. Mr. Saito. Saito, yeah. Okay. It's, uh, there's a Sato, which is S-A-T-O, who, who's uh, one guy, the ultra marathoner we met. Okay. And then Mr. Saito is the guy who's cycling the circumference yeah. of Japan. Okay. And Mr. Saito was great. He was 62 years old at the time, <laughs> and he had just retired. He had been a school teacher his whole life. And he decided in his retirement to just get on his bicycle and ride literally the circumference of Japan, which took him about four months. And uh, we just converged on one another in the second day of the ride and met and um, chatted for a little bit. And then we kept bumping into each yeah. other. And after a while, we said, let's just, you know, we got each other's numbers and we stayed in touch and we, we rode the last few weeks together. And he, he was just a wonderful person. He could not speak a word of English. And my son and I can speak enough Japanese that we, it was fine. We were able to converse. And he said we were his first American friends oh, ever. Wow. A 62-year-old guy, just he lives in the mountains of Japan, yeah. you know, a small uh, town in, the, in central Japan. And when we were in Tokyo just last week, he took a train from his hometown to Tokyo, and we spent the afternoon together. So we just we just saw him Lovely. last week, which is great. He's he's a just he's great of a guy I've, I've met. And this is part of what's wonderful about these trips, right? Yeah. You put yourself out there and you meet these people. And now we've got this friend we would of course never would have met otherwise. And yeah. he would you know it was it was great. He's and a great like guy. Like the traveling monk and so many characters. <laughs> <He> was, <laughs> yeah. We met exactly. That. He was interesting. Yeah. He just you know couldn't. He's, I think that was his sixth year. He'd been walking around Japan, like literally the, the circumference of Japan takes him about a year, and he was on his sixth circumference, you know, sixth route. Wow. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And I'm, I was like, people were looking at me as if I were weird, but right. dude, you know, you're, you're really, you're really, you know, you you're making me feel really normal. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, and also the hospitality of the Japanese. It was amazing. It just seems like you were getting breakfast or lunches, dinners all over the place. That was, I would say, a key theme of this book and a key theme of my experience was 
the hospitality of strangers and the, mm -hmm. I mean, the kindness of so many people we met. And it, it was remarkable because it was not only people who might have heard about us and let us stay in their homes, kind of planned in advance. There were a few people who did that. But literally, we had times where we were riding along the road and a car just pulled over in front of us mm -hmm. and stopped and flagged us down and just started handing us food and water. They just, they, we, like, we saw you on the bike and, and it's very hot today, so please drink this wow. water. I mean, it was, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable experience and it, it makes you feel a real sense of joy at humanity, you know, and where you go around the world and you meet these people who just, they're just genuinely kind and want to help someone. For me, it's almost like a lesson in, it's okay to put yourself into a situation where you need help Mm -hmm. because people will step up and that creates the opportunity to meet wonderful people. Uh, in this case, I mean, we were just riding along, so I mean, it, was, it was remarkable how kind so many people were, but there were often times where I needed help and I would just ask people, you know, is there a place to stay? Or, and mm -hmm. they would just say, well, come just eat with us. I mean, it was, you know, we're staying our place and it, it really kind of reinforces your sense of how great many people are. I'm glad that your son got to witness that as well. It's yes. important. It is important. And in fact, I think as a young person, if you see your parent, how they interact with strangers yeah. and how, one, having the confidence to approach a stranger and ask for help, and then also how to navigate the relationship so that you're polite, but also, you know, you can tell if there's some people who are weird or maybe mm -hmm. you need to stay away from, you know, that's a nuanced thing that you internalize. And so I think it, for me, what I liked was that my son, he not only witnessed it, but then he started to be the one who would go out and, and you know, talk with people and make friends and all that. And so it's a wonderful sense of confidence that you could see, you know, budding. Right. Know? There's this phase or period of life that's short and it's finite and it's over when it's over. Mm -hmm. And this is the birth through, I think, teenage years. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know what that line is exactly, but, the, but definitely birth through early teens. The children need their parents around, mm -hmm. I think, very much so. They want the guidance and they, they are influenced and changed by your presence or your lack of presence, mm -hmm. by your behavior, and most important, what life you role model for them. So mm -hmm. what I decided was I wanted to be a role model for a very adventurous spirit and one that is inclusive. So it's not dad's off doing his thing yeah. you know, by himself because I really love endurance sports and for a while I was, would do Ironman races and all these things mm -hmm. where I would go off by myself and come back. And, and the epiphany I had was why not, I'd like to share it with them. Now United Nations has named you and show climate heroes mm -hmm. because of this trip. You raised money for a tree planting campaign. That's right and promoted UN's efforts to combat climate change. Now, I also want to talk about your Iceland trip that you did in summer of 2011. That's correct. And that was with your son and daughter. That's right. Your daughter was four. Yes. So now, how did this work? Right. Because, oh, it was show riding his own bike now. Actually, for that trip, he didn't. So how so, did you manage So to? what I did is, so we took the same setup as Japan. Yeah. And show, so show was on the trailer cycle. And then, so he was attached to my bike. And then what I did is I attached to, to show's trailer cycle, a bike trailer, which huh. it's, it's basically, it's like a, you know, a baby can sit in there, or a young child can sit in there and has a seatbelt on and there's yeah. a flap that covers them. So they're protected from the elements. So it was like a kind of three person train in a way. Wow. And so was it was hard to manage though, because it seems awfully long. It was long. It's remarkably not as difficult as you might think. It's mm -hmm. kind of, it, it's pretty flexible in the turns, but I had about a hundred pounds of gear. So what, wow. what happened was whenever the headwind was really strong or we were climbing a fairly steep climb, it was a, a nice challenge for my legs. So I, I got in good shape <laughs> that summer, so. you know, two kids and a hundred pounds of gear and those bikes. It, if it's flat, you get momentum going. It's not too bad, but this, you, you can get a one or 2% grade and immediately, you know, your quads are starting to burn it's yeah. a, it's, so 
but yeah, so that, that was great in my, you know, I, what I thought about this ride across Japan, Sho and I thought it was really great, but we left behind my wife and daughter. And mm-hmm. so we talked about if we do another adventure, let's make it a family one. And my, my wife actually joined us. That was a 46-day trip, and she joined us for the final three weeks of that. Oh, so good. we were all together as a family. The first month, it was just me with my kids, but then my wife joined us the last three weeks. So and your great. son was able to cycle a little bit more. He's, he was 10 for that trip. That's right. So that was a little bit of help. Yes, and you notice it. Yeah, I could tell when he was pedaling, particularly on the on the climbs, and so it really it made a difference uh, when he would pedal, and when he did when he didn't, you know, you I was going, "Come on, buddy!" <laughs> yeah. you know, and he's like, "You're like, oh, I'm sorry." No, he did it. Tell me but, about this book then that you're going to be writing about that journey from Intel to Iceland. That's right. So that's the second book. The um, the first book I wrote was called Rising Sun with Sun yeah. spelled S O N, and that's the tri- that's the you know account of the trip across Japan, and then from Intel to Iceland is the one I'm writing now, and that's. It's an account of both that trip and my decision to leave a 14-year career at Intel mm-hmm. and and become what I call myself as a, a family adventurer. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I write um, basically a writer, an endurance athlete, and family adventurer, which means I. I come up with these ideas uh, to do trips with my children and I link them to charitable causes and so you asked before about the United Nations both the trip across Japan and Iceland we were sponsored by the UN Mm -hmm. and we we gave talks and uh, raised money for the Billion Tree campaign and the goal behind that campaign was to get commitments around the world from governments and corporations and individuals to plant seven billion trees so one tree for every human on the planet and when you think about the environmental challenges that we face, mm-hmm. it's fairly complicated and it can get political, but planting trees is a pretty straightforward and simple thing that can be done. Yeah. And, I, and so I, I thought, you know, of, of all the other things I was doing related to environmental issues, I thought this was a, a really great campaign. And the United Nations has been trying to figure out a, a way for an, an intergovernmental effort to address climate change. And, I've, and I think that's particularly important because this is such a, this is a global challenge mm-hmm. and every you know, country has to figure out how they're going to address it. And then the UN's a good forum t- to try that. In addition to all kinds of people power movements, there's a, a group mm-hmm. called 350.org that I'm active with as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of the opposite of the UN's top-down government approach and 350.org is doing this bottoms up. A lot of college students doing really very interesting things, including some pressure for universities to divest in their endowments from all energy-related investments, Hmm. that type of thing. So there's a lot of different stuff that you can do. And as a parent, I just felt like it's part of my responsibility to to actually care about the stuff and and try to do something that's positive instead of just complaining about it or or feeling bad about it. You just, I don't know, take some action. And And this one felt like a really wonderful way to do it. So when is this book supposed to hit stands? From Intel to Iceland will come out next year, so probably uh, 2014. Rising Sun just came out in December of Uh 2012, and it'll take me probably the rest of this year to finish writing From Intel to Iceland. Uh, We have this summer, we're going to do another adventure, so my summer will be uh, consumed with this next thing, which I'm happy to tell you about. Um, So I'll write through the spring, and then I'll start again in the fall, and should be able to finish hopefully by the end of the year. Tell me this next adventure. Okay, so the (laughs) next adventure is we're going to retrace, probably not all, but part of the Lewis and Clark Trail Mm -hmm. in the western United States. And I've always been fascinated by Lewis and Clark. This was, you know, a journey from 1804-1805 where they started basically in St. Louis was the official start of the expedition. President Jefferson asked Meriwether Lewis, and James Clark was his name, to lead an expedition all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And so this right. was, you know, the United States' westward expansion, an attempt to assert 
U.S. dominance over what was then pretty much Indian territory. Mm-hmm. And Sacagawea was one of the mm-hmm. one of their compatriots who actually saved their journals. And so I, I read the journals a long time ago and was always fascinated by them. And what I thought I would do is this summer is retrace that route and possibly do part of it on horseback as well, which I think oh, would be nice. great for my kids, and read the journals to my children along the way mm-hmm. and also tell them stories of my own heritage where we I have on one side people who moved west and settled in Oklahoma and then also one relative was actually a Native American and the Choctaw tribe in Florida and she as a young girl about 10 was forced to mm. on the Trail of Tears yeah. to march from you know go all the way from Florida to Oklahoma many people died on those and so she's also in the bloodline as well. So I want to just mm. basically, so there'll be this element of these personal stories, still a remnant in this country of this go west attitude and the frontier spirit that yeah. is very much a part of actually, I think my interest and desire to do these kinds of adventures mm-hmm. where you, you challenge yourself and you put yourself out and you're, you're in nature. I think there's something in my blood <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that that makes me want to do these things. And it's a, it's a, it's kind of a fascinating part of United States history to share with my children as well. It's interesting that you say that because in my bloodline, both sides of my parents were pioneers uh-huh. across. And I really feel like that. There you are. And here I am. And you're wondering. No, it's true. And you're not afraid. I mean, because I think this is the key. You're not afraid to go out and put yourself mm-hmm. in these situations where you're uncomfortable and you're maybe you're vulnerable and you're in different cultures and different environments. Mm-hmm. And there's and that's exciting, right? Yeah. And for I think for many people, that's not exciting. That's that's uh, that's that's yeah, it causes yeah. a lot of fear. And there's a there's I think there's so much to be gained from not being afraid to explore. Mm-hmm. And we have that very much in this culture and I think in many other cultures too. And it's a really wonderful thing to, to tap into and, and express it in your own way in the kind of the modern generation. I love that. Now, if people want to follow your Lewis and Clark expedition, mm-hmm. you're going to be blogging about that on what, Nat Geo Traveler? Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. If you search Charles Scott Adventurer or Huffington Post, I'll yeah. put up a lot of stuff on Huffington Post and CNBC mm-hmm. and the United Nations has also published it. So on Google, you find everything, right? So yeah. Charles Scott Adventure Writer or something, it would come up. That's exciting. So are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? Yes, I am. All right. The first question is, what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Right. So I would list two. Is it okay to list That's two? That's fine. All right. So one, uh, and I assume most people probably haven't heard of this, but Barbara Savage was a woman who cycled around the world with her husband in the 1970s. Hmm. This is when when uh, Jimmy Carter was president, in fact. So and she refers to him in the book. But it's called Miles from Nowhere. And it's a really interesting I think heard book. Of that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I haven't I don't read know. it, but it's it's funny. Yeah. So for people like me, I love I like doing adventure cycling trips. Yeah. So she was inspiring, and I read that book, and it's really kind of old school the way they did it. You know, they're wearing cotton shorts and all this stuff. Right. And she was she was in Egypt, and and the men harassed her because mm-hmm. you know she wasn't dressed in a appropriately you know modest way, and and her right. husband actually had to punch a guy in the face because huh. they were they were you know harassing her so badly. But she had a bunch of wonderful experiences, and she died in a in an accident. In California after she cycled all around the world she was training for a triathlon I think it was 1981 or something and was just hit by a car and killed and so it's kind of tragic story but but a really she was an inspiring woman and and it was a great adventure so when I read that it was that made me want to uh, want to kind of get on my bike and go you said plane but for me it's also like a bike bike, yeah Yeah. and another the other the second book is also about a cycling 
uh, journey and it's Catfish and Mandala mm-hmm. by Andrew Fum and he's I mean he's a marvelous writer it was his yeah. first book and just beautifully written so it's and it's not just the story of an adventure cycling trip but he grew up in Vietnam I think until age 10 and then escaped during the Viet Cong taking over and his family escaped to America and so he yeah. he writes a lot about the cultural the identity issues that he struggles with and I thought it was really nicely done so he combined mm. that with his with his travels and so it's part of what traveling is all about and it's yeah. this, this exploration of whatever issues you know in your own identity Agreed. And I thought he did a nice job in that book nice what destination do you consider a best-kept secret I would say, and this, this comes from the trip through Iceland. Uh-huh. In northwest Iceland, the, they're called the West Fjords, mm-hmm. there's a big peninsula that sticks out, and it's called the Hornstrandir Peninsula. And it is rugged. It's home to many Arctic foxes, and so if you hike uh-huh. there, you'll, you may well come across them. You see seals if you kayak around there, and of course all kinds of seabirds, Arctic terns and puffins, and just, it's marvelous sea life, and then these massive cliffs glaciers through the interior and there over the past century there have been a few Icelanders kind of rugged Icelanders who tried to live there but didn't make it yeah. and so you you come across some of these ruins of the of the homesteaders <laughs> who tried and then they're gone and I think it's about since 1975 it's been a nature preserve mm-hmm. and so in the summer it's basically Iceland's tough so it's basically July August is the time to go mm-hmm. <laughs> so when the sun's circling in the sky and the, and the weather's reasonably warm you, you can go on long kayaking trips or hiking trips through the peninsula and the water is, com- is clean and clear so you don't even have to bring a lot of water you can just drink it oh, straight wow. from the streams which is true throughout Iceland as long as, long as you're careful about a farm you know, it's like, it's there, you're not near animals but huh. basically it's great I hadn't heard of it before until I took this trip and not, not many people I know have gone there yeah. but it's a way to kind of get back to just a beautiful pristine wilderness and a pretty rugged experience at the same time what site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? Yeah, and here I'll, I'll give probably an answer that many people would give to. For me, that I would say the Grand Canyon. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> yeah. love uh, I mean, sorry. No, it's great. Yeah. No, it is. You, you almost want to, you want to come up with this answer. Like, no one's heard of it. I'm sorry. Like, there, there are a few that they're, they're, they're famous for a good reason. Yeah. And I've gone to the Grand Canyon. I've hiked there a number of times. And a few years ago, I actually ran rim to rim to rim, which is a 46-mile mm-hmm. run. You just go across the canyon all the way at the tip to the north rim and then come back, which is it's a... I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, yeah. but it, it was it was hard, but it was wonderful. And at, what's so great about the Grand Canyon is as you descend, you know the rocks become uh, actually a couple billion years old. I mean, it's it's, it's really going hmm. far back in time. And at the base, they are this deep, black, intense, almost you know scary yeah. <laughs> color. It's it's a it's a very it's a wild feeling. So descending into the canyon and coming back out. You're traveling through time, and just just watching how it changes is a is a pretty humbling feeling, and I mean it's just a majestic place. Probably one of my favorite memories was on that run. I had a headlamp, but I turned it off because the, the moon was pretty bright, mm-hmm. and so I was running across the canyon floor, and all I could hear were my footsteps echoing off of the nice. walls of the canyon, and the light of the moon was guiding the path, and it, I had this kind of this moment of just uh, it just time slowed down. 
and I didn't want to be anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of messed up from from how exhausted I was too. So you're you're already, yeah. you're, you're kind of hallucinating yeah. here. So it probably was very augmented trippy. by yeah, it was very trippy. Like no drugs involved. Yeah. I had all the drugs from just whatever my brain was doing on you know lack of uh, sleep and, and exhaustion. <laughs> but it was it was remarkable. And it's really so that that kind of experience is it's difficult to find. Mm-hmm. And the Grand Canyon, you you very quickly can can have that kind of experience if you put yourself out there. Yeah, it's beautiful. All my family's in the Southwest and. California, so I, I, I feel you. Yeah, that's a good answer. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Mm, this is from the trip across Japan, mm-hmm. and it's it's in the context of when you're exhausted, you know, food tastes better. Yeah. And when we were up in Hokkaido, which is the northern island of Japan, and I was cycling with Show on the trailer cycle, and there was a day where we hit a very steep, almost mountain. I didn't realize it, so it took a couple of hours to, to make this climb. It was very hard, so I was exhausted. And then we came down the other side, and, and my fingers were numb, and you know the weather was getting cold. And so we came to this town, and we came across a, a Japanese inn right about dinner time. It was like 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And usually we slept in a tent, but I was so wiped out. I said, you know what? Today we're giving ourselves yeah. luxury. You know, it was 60 bucks, whatever. But yeah. it was, so we splurged. We splurged $60, <laughs> right. and we got a room in this Japanese inn. But these places, you need to make a reservation in advance. They serve you dinner as part of it, but not when you arrive at 6 p.m. And so we got there, and they said, you know, you're welcome to stay here. We do have a room, but you can't eat. And I said, that's fine. And, and we had a few meager provisions, and yeah. I just brought them upstairs. I was too tired to even go out and try to find a place. So we were just eating, like, some peanuts and soy joy <laughs> bars in our room, and there was a knock at the door. And the proprietor came in, and she had two crabs freshly made and she just set them down and she said you guys look like you could use this <laughs> you, know, you, could, you, know, you look like you're really hungry and they were the most delicious crabs I'd, I'd ever eaten so it was great mm-hmm. it was a, you know we'd had we'd cycled for eight hours or something that day yeah. and it was it was quite memorable and, my, and show I ate one crab and I ate another and yeah. then we went to bed on futons feeling luxurious another yeah. example of that hospitality that's right that's, that's exactly right yeah. <laughs> what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road and how do you think other travelers could avoid it <laughs> so some of the things that that I've done, I think most travelers they would yeah. have, they would have said like yeah like don't take on the same risk like yeah so this one I'm not sure that anyone's going to necessarily learn anything from this but this is also riding across Japan we rode over the Japan Alps we, we yeah. there were about eight eight mountain passes that we went through in a, in five days and one day we went over and down two mountains in the day and for some reason we just were feeling very full of energy. And we were really, really in the middle of nowhere. There was no place to sleep. Just set up your tent in the forest. And there was a third mountain that we needed to get over before reaching a, a, a World Heritage site that we wanted to see that, was, that would definitely have a lodging. And it was near the end of the afternoon, like at 5, and, I, and the sun was going to go down by 7. But for some reason, I thought we could make it. Mm-hmm. We could make it all the way over the mountain, all the way down the other side to this town before the sun went down, which we definitely couldn't but I, for some reason I thought we could and show said yeah so you want to try it he said yeah, let's go for it and so in the end what happened is we were as the sun was sinking we were still climbing yeah and it was a narrow mountain road with a sheer drop off so a kind of cliff wall on one side and a sheer drop off on the other so there was really nowhere to stop or set up a tent and every so often they had pullouts for cars so that was the one little space you could set up a tent but it was a pullout for cars so I mean in the middle of the night if they didn't happen not see us, that yeah. we could get run over by a car while sleeping in the tent. So that wasn't an option. And so it, it was becoming increasingly dark and I was exhausted from riding all day and, and show was ready to stop. And and I, I uh, realized like this was hubris. Like I should have just mm-hmm. stopped before we had plenty of time to set up our tent. 
And then just as the sun was about to go down, we made the summit. And at the top of the summit, there was a hiker's hut that had mm -hmm. been set up just for idiots like us who <laughs> <laughs> we were in trouble and needed shelter. And it was it was open and it had a you know a cot that both of us could could sit on and a little table where we could eat the food that we did have with us. So we got lucky. We yeah. you know it's trail magic. Sometimes when you need help, it just shows up. Mm -hmm. So we made it just as the sun went down. It was by the time we were getting inside the hiker's hut, it had gone pitch black. But so that was harrowing. As I was going up the mountain, I just was kind of beating myself up of like what I I knew this was not you know going to happen. I don't know why I thought I could do it. And that was when um, you had your broken toe, wasn't it? That uh, I got my broken toe the next day. That those few days, I think I was in another place of like <laughs> guess so. thinking somehow I was better than I really am. <laughs> I don't know. I was being humbled that week. Right. <laughs> what passport staff still eludes you? I would say Iran. Oh wow. And of course, I could go to Iran. If I wanted to, I think what I really want to do is I would like to cycle either the circumference or down through Iran with my kids. Because mm -hmm. I, I think it'd be fascinating to learn about Persian culture. Yeah. And I've met so many people either who are Iranian or who've been there who talk about how wonderful the people are. So because of how extreme the political relationship is between the U.S. and Iran, yeah. most people, that's the first and only thing they think about about that, that culture and that country. And there's there's so much more there, I can tell. And mm -hmm. I think it would be fascinating and talk about the kindness of strangers. I, I know from talking with people, it would be one of these amazing trips where people would invite you into their homes. You'd yeah. learn so much about the culture and so I love to do that I'm I'm uncomfortable right now doing it because I assume cycling through the country the people who do feel suspicious about Americans maybe would think that by cycling through the country and taking all the pictures that we take you know maybe we set ourselves up yeah. in a naive way to be yeah. accused of spying or something like that so when the time is right that's mm -hmm. on my list I love that and you you will experience the kindness of strangers there because uh, just I, I was living with a Bedouin in Wadi Rum mm -hmm. and I just had never been to the Middle East before and I was amazed by how I was welcomed into families yeah. it'll be incredible yeah I'm looking forward to it hopefully someday <laughs> what is your most cherished souvenir and why uh, that is let's see probably the something I received last week mm. in fact so last week when we were in Tokyo we met with Mr. Saito, the, yeah. one of the characters in Rising Sun in the book. And he's this, you know, he was the retired school teacher who cycled the circumference of Japan. We spent time with him. A friend of his printed out his blog from that trip, which included, you know, all of his descriptions in Japanese and all of his photos. And Sho and I appear in a lot of his photos. Yeah. And, and he said there were only three booklets made of his blog that had been, you know, put in printed form. And he brought one to us and gave it to us. So this wow. is a memento from him. So his experience of that wonderful, you know, four-month journey through Japan and how we were a part of it, uh, told from his point of view. So, and you're—he's a part of your story as well. It's—it's it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, what's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Yeah, I don't know how interesting you would call this, but I would just say the, the simple practice of taking off your shoes inside, mm -hmm. which is very common in Japan and a couple of other cultures as well. I experienced it there and we do that in our house as well and yeah. it's it's one of those where this is simplistic I guess but I don't know why we didn't figure this out in the West a mm -hmm. long time ago too it's kind of it makes sense like why would you bring the dirt on your shoes outside into your home yeah and then have to clean it up you could just I mean it's so easy to do to <laughs> so it's a, you know it's one of those basic things but when you're exposed to it in another culture 
you, you, you say, you know, yeah, they've got that one figured out better yeah. than we do. So, you know, you don't, you don't step on your bed with your shoes on or you right. don't step on a chair with your shoes on. And I grew up doing that all the time. Yeah. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> it's not smart. I mean, it just makes everything dirty, right? It's, it's not clean or all that. So, yeah, that's, so that's my answer. It's, it's do just, you know uh, Don George? <laughs> okay, he's this amazing travel writer. That, that is his as well. That's his uh-huh. uh, <laughs> okay. custom or tradition that he's incorporated. Oh, good. So. All right. good for him. I, yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, also married to a Japanese woman. So, yeah, yeah. the Japanese have it right. They, they do. On that one, they've <laughs> definitely got it right. Exactly. Yeah. What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? You and I spoke about this at the very beginning. Don't let fear mm-hmm. stop you from going wherever it is you want to go. Yeah. It's that simple. It's unwarranted. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and even... Even these fiascos, like the time on the mountain like, or the sumo wrestling story, all these little things that occurred that, you know, okay, I was uncomfortable or maybe I regretted elements of it. Mm-hmm. Even those, they make great stories. Yeah. So when you're in the midst of a fiasco, it, you actually almost want it to get worse because <laughs> later on it's going to make a greater story. <laughs> so the, the fear of being out of your comfort zone, of being in a situation that you're not sure how you can, can control or you don't know how you're going to resolve it, that's actually the stuff of life, yeah. right? And so just, just accepting that, you know, sometimes things are not going to go the way you want them to go or you expect them to go, and then seeing how it plays out, that's, that's, that's actually the stuff of good writing. Yeah. You know, so that's where you find your material. So if you're afraid and you let the fear dictate it, you know, it's not going to be very interesting, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, a lot of these adventures, they're, they're supposed to be hard. Yeah. You know, it's not supposed to be easy. I'm not supposed to be comfortable, and my children aren't supposed to be comfortable. I'll keep them safe, and there's a line mm-hmm. of what's appropriate and inappropriate, but uh, there's nothing wrong with discomfort. And there's nothing wrong with fear unless you let fear of discomfort stop you from doing something interesting. Agreed. That's what makes you grow, builds character. Yeah. So. yeah. And so it should be, that should be obvious. And yet, I think so many of us, and, and even a person might do it one day, might do, not do it another, it's easy to say, and yet we continually act with uh, letting fear keep us from doing things that in the end, I think, are very much in our interest. Mm-hmm. And what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? That it's okay to put yourself in a situation where you need help from others. Yeah. And that kind of corollary to this, mm-hmm. to not being, you know, stopped by your fear. And that's where you've witnessed the kindness of strangers. Yeah. And that's where you also learn about yourself. And that's where you find sometimes the most surprising and wonderful experiences that you couldn't have planned out before. And so the, the way that I do this on the bike trips I've done with my kids is we'll have a general route planned out so that I have some sense of, you know, how long this is going to take and where we're going to go. But we don't make any reservations except the flight in and the flight out at mm-hmm. the end of the whole thing. And so in the middle, you just go. And so I'll, I'll look at the map and I'll say, probably we're going to roughly get here at the end of the day. And, and if you have, you know, a problem with the bikes or the weather or something, you may not get there. But whatever, as the day gets towards an end, then I just start looking for people and ask, do you, like, is there a public bath where we can clean up and a place to, like, set up our tent? And that interaction where you need help finding a place to clean up and sleep often leads to people inviting you in or to tell, at least just making a friend, telling stories, yeah. shooting off fireworks together, I mean, all kinds yeah. of stuff. But if, if I had a reservation all planned out, I would never talk to those people. I'd just yeah. go straight in, I'd be in my little capsule of a room and, and then leave the next morning. Mm-hmm. But by not knowing, it forces me to interact with people and that you know, leads to wonderful friendships and relationships and experiences. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to following your adventures this summer and beyond. Thank you, Christine. I appreciate (laughs) it. I enjoyed it. Charles Scott's stories are simply amazing, and I can't wait to read his new book, 
from Intel to Iceland that will be released in 2014. But in the meantime, make sure to follow his Lewis and Clark adventure that's going on right now through August by checking out the website www.familyadventureguy.blogspot.com. So best of luck to the Charles Scott family, and until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.